1: March 7, 2019. Thank you for listening to the Mike Abadir show here. Uh, Gino Piccola along with Mike. Nice packed show for you today. A, a One of my favorite styles of our show, Mike, where we just kind of bounce around. I think that's that's what I like the most is uh, you're going to get some variety a lot of times when you when you tune into the Mike Abadir show. Some baseball, a little basketball, a little football, a little horse racing. Uh, we're going to start talking a little bit more entertainment now with Game of Thrones coming up. Uh, in the next, what, month, six weeks or so. So lots going on, lots of fun. How have you been, buddy?
2: I've been good, man. Just uh, enjoying the countdown to Game of Thrones. Actually, not enjoying it. Well, sort of enjoying it, because I'm watching Season
0: 7 all over again.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, man, that, that song gets me gets me all jazzed it's up man. Pumping, so, yeah yeah you know i, I want to yeah we'll talk more about it towards the end of the show but you know i've got some predictions um i'm just i'm just fiending for it man they took way too long to make it happen but i know it's going to be worth the wait
1: yeah and uh one of the, the more interesting topics of the week was one that we can actually bring in our first guest you want to welcome him in and I, i'm going to ask- I'm going to ask him about this, and we can all kind of kind of talk about it for a minute. Right when we bring in Rick. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no doubt about it. And did you, by the way, did you
2: watch a lot of the combine? Some of it, just kind of check out the highlights.
1: A little bit, yeah, good amount. I watched, okay. I watched a lot, a lot. Of, I read a lot of stuff. Okay, read a lot well, of stuff our after. first guest will, yeah.
2: our first guest will, will take us there. He'll give us all the highlights and the lowlights and everything between. Frequent guest of ours, Gino Rick Saratella from NFL Draft Scout. And the founder of the NFL Draft Bible, Rick. How are you, my friend?
3: Hey guys, glad you, hey. you have me.
2: What's up, Ricky? How uh, are you? Okay.
3: There we go. Hey, what's better than being right here, right now?
1: Nice, nice. Okay, right, Nothing. right away. Got to, got to ask about the, the name, the big name. We've been hearing so much about Murray. Is this a? Is this yeah. especially with these tests now, with this mental state? Is this? I watched that interview a few weeks back on the Dan Patrick Show. And it was really uh, uncomfortable. It was awkward. He just couldn't really like he he obviously didn't have a lot to say, but it was just he didn't he didn't he was very ill prepared. Dan kind of kept making comments, talking to his father in the background. What's your overall view on all of this coming out? Is it a big deal? Not a big deal? Overhyped? Um, Just kind of roll on on the Murray thing for a little bit here. No doubt about
3: it. I mean, it goes further back for me because I had a chance to work the Heisman Trophy presentation in New York City where, you know, I've been I've been known to ask a tough question or two in my life. And, you know, it just seems like anytime I ask Kyler Murray a question pertaining to the future of his career, uh, he looked at me like I had 25 heads. It was very <laughs> awkward, uh, a lot of silence, a lot of just staring at me into space kind of deal. And I noticed him doing that with some of the other media. So then when uh, the Dan Patrick thing came out. I wasn't surprised because it was a lot of the same at the Heisman Trophy presentation. And then, you know, for me personally, I'm a guy that likes a quarterback with moxie that has confidence in their abilities, mm-hmm. isn't afraid to wing it and fling it. If if I've been throwing a football my whole life, I'm not going to be scared of the competition, go out there and, and compete at Indianapolis. With all that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I... <laughs> You know, I have Kyler Murray as one of the winners of the combine for not working out, and you might say, wait, what? What are you talking about, Rick? But, I mean, just the fact alone that he's being mentioned as the top overall pick, I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's going in the first round, and, and the fact that he's in that conversation now, even if he does fly to like the Dolphins at 13 or 14, wherever they're picking. It's like they feel like they got a bargain now. So I think he feel I feel like, you know, none of the other quarterbacks overwhelmed. Haskins did what he had to do. Lock and Jones did okay. But it's just like, hey, Kyler Murray was the big winner here.
2: Yeah, you know, but here's the thing, Rick. During that time that you're talking about, going back to the Heisman like you mentioned, all the way through, let's just say, the end of – Right when he made the decision that he's gonna be going for, uh, you know, going for it quarterback-wise, right? I thought that that whole time he was trying to get leverage, schooled by his agent, uh-huh. say nothing so that we could get more money out of the ace. But when we found out that that wasn't the case, it kind of threw my theory out the window. And I'm like, wait a second here, this is him showing his true self in a lot of ways. I don't think he's the type of guy that could get coached up. I think he was probably just told, if you're not comfortable answering it, just be mum, Mm -hmm. right? But think, think of Tim Tebow as the contrast. What would Tebow say had he been confronted with that choice on the same day or during the same month or same time period? He probably would have said something like, Rick, man, let me tell you, I'm torn. I love both sports. I love being the quarterback of a football team and the camaraderie, but yet I love baseball. Baseball is my passion. I don't know what to do. This is a very, very tough decision. I'm going to prey on it and talk to my family about it. We heard nothing like that. Like, I, I don't even get an indication as to what sport he likes, why he made his decision, anything.
3: No, the leadership is definitely questionable. And I think that, you know, he, he's, he's only for a select few. But as you know, it it only takes one. And it just so happens that number one, Selection is is, is a coach that's familiar with him, is a coach that would love to have him run that offense for him. And, you know, there's a lot of questions that are going to surround this kid. He's definitely not a leader of men, I can tell you that. And uh, a, a, a complete opposite of what Baker Mayfield was coming out of the draft a year ago. But then, you know, there's the evaluators that would argue with you and say, hey, well, this kid. Uh, Ran that same Oklahoma Sooner offense uh, just as well, if not better than Baker Mayfield did. So uh, you're going to have that, you know, count, you know, uh, point counterpoint type of situation uh, going on in war rooms if if we even get a chance to get that far. Because again, uh, you know, it is smoke screen season, but when when there's a lot of smoke, sometimes there is fire. And I have to believe that uh, there has to be some kind of truth to the Arizona Cardinals' rumor.
1: Rick, you talked about how uh, Murray improved his stock by not even um, by not even really exercising at the combine by by not even showing his stuff by doing nothing really out there. Who who were some of the people that moved the, moved themselves up with what we saw from them physically?
3: Yeah, I mean, I had a chance to be in that throw, throwing session with Haskins, Locke, and Jones. I thought Daniel Jones did the best of of the trio, but Haskins did what he had to do, in my opinion, and Locke looked. Fairly well, uh, you know, d- capable as well. I think at the running back, Miles Sanders from Penn State is a guy that kind of uh, catapulted himself. Probably a day three pick, but after his combine performance, I think early day two is more realistic for him. Of course, uh, DK Metcalf. I think you know just the fact that he ran a four three three at two hundred and thirty pounds. It, it it created a buzz, and then you look at the agility drills, and you see, you know, his three cone and the short shuttle was was slower than Tom Brady. So then you have to wonder about his change of direction and separation ability. But hey, he created a little bit of a buzz for himself. So I thought DK Metcalf was a big winner. Um, You know, Montez Sweat on the defensive side. You know, who doesn't love a 260 pound defensive end who runs a four four one. And then, you know, Rashawn Gary, I think, you know, so solidifies him his draft stock, uh, you know, four, five, eight at nearly three hundred pounds, running faster than most of the running backs there. Uh a lot of winners, the Devons at the linebacker, Devin White of L S U and, and Devin Bush of Michigan. I think those two guys now are, are uh first round bound. Of course, Devin White of L S U having some uh Character questions there. A couple of arrests before he turned 18 years of age. Uh, there's a there's an incident with a with an underage female there. There's a little bit of a hit and run and a, and a police chase there. So teams will have to do their due diligence there. And then you know, shout out to the Test Football Academy guys that you know have a chance to watch a, a select few players train for this process. And you know, the hard one of the hardest working players in this year's draft is LSU tight end Foster Moreau. Uh, I think we saw that at the Combine. And then Darnell Savage from Maryland, I mean, the 200-pound safety, running in the four threes, uh, I think now teams are looking at him as a potential nickelback, and, and he made himself some money. So I could talk about winners and losers all day long. I haven't gotten to the losers yet, but, hey, uh, Ja'Kai Polite from Florida, I mean, he, you know, talk about uh, making his agent work overtime, Mike. I know you'll you'll appreciate this. I mean, he just came physically unprepared, mentally unprepared, flunked every NFL Team interview, except for the Rams, and then flunked the media portion of the uh, uh, of the you know uh, assembled media, and then went out there and flunked all the physical drills. The so, so guy, <laughs> polite. I mean, this was a guy potentially a first round pick at one point. Now I have to lean more towards day three for that individual.
2: He was what like fifteen, sixteen pounds overweight, right?
3: Oh, I mean, he was just uh, came in overweight, came in slow, uh, came in with a poor attitude, and just. <laughs> You know, every answer made you cringe. You almost felt bad for the kid.
2: You know, I actually w- worked with somebody like that a few years ago, guys. And um, yeah, he he was he was projected as a surefire, you know, five round five, round six guy. That th- leaving the combine, I was like, man, I did not feel good about what he's telling me and what I heard from my scout buddies. And uh, he ended up not getting drafted. He ended up being signed as an undrafted free agent. And guess what? Very first rookie mini camp weekend and they released him couldn't get the playbook down had wow. a bad attitude came in out of shape so uh yeah i am very sympathetic to that from an agent's perspective because i've been through it not with the first rounder of course but i think anytime that you find that you're busting your butt but your client is doing the opposite it's a pretty pretty disheartening there um another observation of mine though rick is that and I was telling Gino this last week. I thought that this draft is going to be known for edge rushers, D linemen, and tight ends. Uh, you would already mentioned uh, the performance of one of the tight ends. How about the uh, Iowa guys uh, and Warring from San Diego State? How do the tight ends collectively as a group look like to you?
3: What a great tight end class. I mean, really, truly, it, it's one of the better classes in a long time. You mentioned the Warren Kip from San Diego State. What an incredible backstory! I mean, here's a guy, I think he was playing water polo as a goalie, and the high school football coach finds him in his senior year. He plays one year of high school, um, goes over to San Diego State, just uh, incredibly uh, gifted athlete, raw tools. I mean, there's a lot of polish and coaching up, but you have to love – uh the upside with this individual and I, I think he's a day three selection but a guy that you know teams are going to w- want to work with Um you know Josh Oliver from uh, San Jose State another one just you know I call him Paul Paul Orndorff body beautiful uh looks tremendous now there's a lot to work on there but teams like that at the tight end position as you know uh, they'll take a body, you know, a body of clay, an uh, athletic, uh, athletic specimen, and, and mold them into a tight end. But that being said, I mean, you know, we haven't seen a pair of tight ends go in the first round from the same team. I think we will this year. And Noah Fant had a, a tremendous combine workout, and I think he is a, a first round bound. I think he compares, you know, closer to an Evan Ingram tight. Where Hawkinson, I mean, this kid, man, is the top tight end I've evaluated for a very long time. Uh if we fast forward five years from now, I, I think this, this kid's gonna probably have a couple of all pros and and pro bowls in his future. I just love the uh combination of pass catchability, blocking ability, and you know, Noah Fant, he's a great pass catcher. He gets I think he gets knocked a little bit um too harshly on his blocking skills because he was benched earlier on in his career for blocking, but it's not for lack of effort. I mean, this kid is giving high effort, uh, high energy. Not quite the blocker, Hawkinson is, but hey, uh, these are two guys that are going to make an immediate impact at the next level.
2: Oh yeah, he's one of those guys. He can move in space. You know, he can he can be like a Gronk type impact. I mean, I think what was his 4-5 mm-hmm. like or, or something like that. Super super yeah. athletic. So. Uh yeah I agree with you. I think both the Iowa guys are are tremendous and uh superb hey i, I have a quick question for you Go, going back to uh when you were talking about polite, and you said that he'd failed all the examination except for the rams. Uh, tell us about that what how, what, what how how was it that he didn't yeah fail the rams exam yeah what information do you have on that
3: well it, it, it's actually his own words. Uh, at the at the podium with the media, they asked him, "How did the interviews go?" He said, uh, "You know, he said uh, they went bad, except for the Rams, because they were the only ones <laughs> that didn't criticize me, man. You know, they didn't have anything harsh to say. So, you oh, know, the Rams were the only ones that knew what they were talking about, man. You know, <laughs> hey, it's in their own words, <laughs> I'm just I'm just telling you what." Just, the guy told us well here's the funny thing
2: about that is you know and for those who (laughs) don't know much about the interview process you know uh i'm sure a lot of the listeners out there they hear about interview and they're like is this a suit and tie type thing or what is it this is good this is strictly a we're going to find out everything about you and your past it's almost like an fbi background check and we're going to drill you on it and we're going to ask you anything from football related questions to how many girlfriends have you knocked up to anything in between and uh you know I've, I've had guys at the Combine be asked, you know, hey, you like to, you, you like to tip the bottle a little bit too much? I hear you like to get into bar fights. What about that time at this bar in Albuquerque? I mean, it's pretty intense. And you can either go in there defensive or you could go in there prepared and knowing what to expect. And uh, it sounds like Mr. Polite uh, di- didn't get a, a lot of uh, p- polite feedback from those guys, huh?
3: <laughs> I see what you did there, Mikey. I like that. <laughs> um, you know, hey, as you know, we're dealing with twenty-year-old individuals, and and you know, I I, I uh, travel training facilities across the country. You know, it's amazing to me. You know, some of the players. I mean, uh, they're the first-round lock that I can tell you. Um, as you know, this this combine training uh, gets very cost costly, and, and agents have to pour. You know, upwards anywhere between 10, 10 to 40 to 50,000 just to, to get him right. And, you know, there is one player that I think is a lock for the first round. His trainer told me, Hey, he showed up for the first three days. I haven't seen him. Uh, obviously from a bigger, uh, agent firm, uh, the agent probably not his money. He so, said, you know, I, 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 texted the, the agent and said, Hey, where's your guy? He showed up the first three days. I haven't seen him since. And the agent's response was literally LOL. He thought it was a joke. And, you know, it's it's crazy uh, just the way this whole process works. And, you know, I can tell you this. uh, He ran very disappointing times. I think he'll still go in the first round, but he probably cost himself about 10, 20 spots.
2: Well, I'm not sure if either of these guys are or or whom you're talking about. But um, quick feedback on Ed Oliver and uh, Cleveland
0: Farrell.
3: Well, you know, Oliver is number three on my board. Dude, you know, there's people talking about he won't even get taken in the first round. I don't know what film they're watching, um, but you know, this guy. I don't care that he's a tweener. I don't care that you know teams don't know whether to play him inside, outside. He actually uh, was requested to do linebacker drills. Teams looking at him at inside linebacker, almost like a Hassan Redick coming out a few years ago. I don't care where you put the man. This guy can play. This guy can ball. He's a nasty dog. And I think he's gonna be one of the premier players that come out of this draft. I really love uh Ed Oliver, what he brings to the table and, and Clelin uh Farrell, I mean, here's a guy, four three, hand in the dirt, true defensive end that's gonna get after it. Um, I think he's he's a solid um middle of the first round pick and, and uh these Clemson boys now Dexter Lawrence too. I mean he he was going pretty good at three forty three. I think he ran five oh five and then pulled up with the hammy. Um, so he's still got a chance to go first round two, and then Christian Wilkins, uh, Austin Bryant, I mean, that Clemson defensive line, as you guys know, it feels like we've been talking about them forever, but definitely like Farrell as a a premier uh, 4-3 edge, and and Oliver, listen, I think he's in the same boat as Rashawn Gary too because it's kind of like, hey, well, what position are these guys at the next level? But if you're a good coach, I mean, you find a way to utilize talent like that.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it, man. Hey, listen, uh, this segment went by so fast, I actually lost track of time. And there's so many other guys that I want to talk to you about and (laughs) and get your feedback on. Yeah, maybe um, as we let you go here, you could let everybody know about the Bible and what exactly you're putting up for sale, because this looks like something that me as an agent would be interested in. uh, But definitely college football and pro football fans.
3: Indeed. I mean, listen, it's, it's been about, you know, 2010 was the last time I did a publication. We're bringing it back. Uh, you know, we're selling it on NFLDraftScout.com. You can go there in the menu bar and order it now. We, we're running a 10% uh, discount for the pre-order. It'll be out in mid-March, and Mike, you'll appreciate this. Not only do we have this year's draft covered, but we got the two, top 250 seniors for next year.
2: We I can get things going on for next
3: year. Yeah, we got the top 100 underclassmen for next year. We've got over, you know, 100 player interviews, and it's just my unique spin on draft coverage. You know, I traveled the country from the media days to the games to the all-star circuit to the combine. You know, I just, I got home from India. I spent one day home, and I'm down here at the Maxwell Club Awards, getting ready to talk to Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and Lee Steinberg, Ray Lewis, all these guys are going to pick their brain on the draft. It's all going to be there in the draft guide, so... Hey, we can't stop, we won't stop. You already know that. And you know, we'll we'll try and do some more frequent appearances now these last 2 months leading up to the draft. I want to come in here and and provide you guys with the draft updates that you need to know and and talk about it and be about it and hey Time flies on the Mike Avedere show. What, what, what more do you want?
2: <laughs> well, i tell you what, man. I'm going I'm to be getting that for myself. No joke. I'm not just saying this because you're on the show with us. And for everybody out there, it's not just because Rick is a personal friend of mine. This thing is highly affordable. I mean, I can't even believe the way you guys priced it out. Uh, I mean, you're practically giving them away. It's the cost right of now, paper. It's 9 bucks know? if
3: you order right now. So, hey, it, it, it's cheaper than a cocktail I'm about to go buy.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Rick, (laughs) thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Enjoy that cocktail. And uh, let's talk after leading up to the draft, and and you can kind of tell us how things have sorted out over the next 30, 45 days. No, let's do it, fellas. No doubt about it. Always appreciate it. Love you guys. Love you too, my man. That's Rick Saratella of the NFL Draft Bible, NFL Draft Scout. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to be shifting the focus to baseball.
1: us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn
0: looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping want to play the ponies Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. Channel.
1: Want to experience football from the perspective of a former player who also has coaching experience? Tune in to Sports Info UM with Daryl Oliver. He'll talk about the drafts, play by play, and even what's happening in the offseason. Daryl has the connections and the knowledge to bring you the inside stories of the game's past, present, and future. He'll cover the camps on and off the field and everything else, football and beyond. Sports Info UM is heard Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at one 346 9144 That's one 346 9144 Or send an email to
1: mike at show.com Now, back to this week's program. Good stuff there from Rick. I don't know if you caught the reference. Uh, he made a Paul Orndorff reference. I'm pretty sure in there, which yeah. is uh, an old school wrestler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I love that. Which I was like, nice. I thought I thought that's what he said. So great job from Rick as we transition from the combine on over to baseball. I got. I, I'm pumped. I got all my baseball uh, uh, handicapping in last week, did did some overs and unders work, got some fantasy uh, drafts lined up in the next few days. So I've been sinking my teeth in as we bring in national writer from Baseball America, Kyle Glazer, to talk some baseball with us. Kyle, it is fun time for us now as we are getting close to opening day. Uh, excitement in the air, right? Absolutely. You know, after this entire offseason, all the talk was about. The negative
4: stuff about why these guys aren't signing, if there's possible collusion, what's going on with all the rule changes. It's nice that games are finally being played and we can focus on what really matters, which is the players. And uh, obviously it's spring training, nothing really counts here, but just seeing games being played, seeing how some of the young kids have taken a step forward. It's always, you know, a lot more fun than just sitting around talking about who's not paying who, what amount of money. Kyle, you mentioned the
2: rule changes, and it looks like some of that might be diverted or or handled. What can you tell us about the possibility of the CBA getting extended and uh, preserving labor peace for the foreseeable near future in baseball?
4: All this is still a long way off. Keep in mind, the current CBA doesn't even expire until the end of the 2021 se- after the 2021 season. We've still got three more seasons to be played before we can really get into. Oh, is it going to be extended? Is there going to be any sort of work stoppage? And a lot can change, right? I mean, even in these past few months, we saw in October, November, December, everything was about how there's just not a lot of you know good relations between the two sides, the owners and the players' association. There's a lot of animosity, people threatening strikes. And now you fast forward into late February, early March, people are talking about they're at the table together, finding some solutions to you know a number of issues, not all of them, but some of them. I think there's a lot of time still left to be played out, and I think it's a little bit foolish to try and predict exactly what's going to happen three years out from now. But it's a good sign that the two sides are addressing some of the, the fundamental issues that are affecting, at the very least, the economic structure of the game.
2: Do you think it's maybe a, in part damage control? Um, you know, hey, Tony Clark's bringing up some good points here. And, you know, the more he talks about it, the more the media and, and the players are going to dwell on it. As owners, we should probably sit down and acknowledge that the system may be uh, broken or can be improved. And and so let's get on it now to kind of get ahead of the issue and to kind of be able to get
4: toned down the rhetoric. Is that, is that maybe a part of it as well? I don't know if it is damage control as much as I think the Players Association has some things they would like to see changed, and ownership has some things like they would like to see changed, and anytime you have two sides, you know, wanting to see various changes, they can negotiate it and maybe trade them off. I'll give you this if you give me that. Um, Major League Baseball, you know, the owners are everyone, you know, is subject to to criticism. They say they don't read it. They do, and it obviously is never fun when you're dragged through the mud, but Um, The players sometimes were also facing some criticism. I don't don't think this is a response to any third party criticism as much as a recognition of, okay, there's some things here that can be improved. Let's see how many of them we can try and tackle.
2: What can be done to get these free agents to um, get signed earlier? Is there I mean, are they looking to what, what kind of rule changes can even be made to address that?
4: Well, I think we're probably not going to see anything, you know, really long-standing. Probably until this current CBA expires. Now, there might be some small tweaks, a couple of of small improvements or adjustments made. It really just kind of depends on what the uh, owners and the players association agree to do in terms of changing something here in the middle of a collective bargaining agreement. Um, More often than not, things come at the end of collective bargaining agreements, major changes. But I think the biggest thing that's come up is just a kind of changing of the the way free agency happens in the first place. Right now, baseball, you sign as an amateur, a team can then control you for depending on when and how old you were when you signed anywhere from four, five, six years in the minor leagues before they have to do anything with you, then they can put you on the 40-man roster and option you three times, okay, so that's three, you know, over three more years, I should say, is when they can option you, so in some cases, that's nine years, and then, oh, they control how much you make your first, you know, six years in, in the big leagues, It's three years at minimum salaries with slight bumps the team dictates, and then arbitration, so in theory, you've got 15 years potentially of salary control. You don't see that in many private industries. Um, I think what a lot of people on the player side and on you know their representatives on the agent side have talked about is wanting to change it so that a player's quote unquote clock or free agency clock isn't tied any longer to when they make the majors. It's tied to when they sign that first amateur contract. Um, hockey has a universal free agency. And I think the idea is that, you know, Right now, if you sign at 18, a team has you for, say, 8 or 9 years, and after 8 or 9 years, you will be a free agent no matter what that team does. So that does a couple things. For the players, it ensures they hit free agency 26, 27, 28 when teams will still want to pay them. And on top of that, it really eliminates service time manipulation, where all of a sudden, if you know that a guy you sign is going to be a free agent X year, no matter what you do, your incentive is now to bring him up as soon as he's ready rather than hold him down. So instead of Bymer Guerrero or Eloy Jimenez Jr. staying in the minors, they'd be up in the majors already. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone as far as the players are concerned. And I think that's the general outline of, of what they and their representatives are, are kind of pushing for right now.
1: Okay, so let's let's start jumping into this year and and uh, some of the teams and some predictions. When we're looking on the American League side, I think we're looking at uh, the league that might be a little bit more tough heavy than the National, and I it, it seems like to me at least kind of. Some of the the same the same faces as last year. The, the Yankees and the Red Sox look like they're going to be pretty tough. Um, I think the Astros are going to be pretty tough, especially cause in that division. We saw like the Mariners and the A's overachieve a little bit. I think the team that I really think is a little sneaky in the American League that might be able to win their division, uh, I think I played them at a th- plus – 325, and their over-under for wins total is 84, is the Twins. What do you think about the Twins here with Berrios? Can he take the next step? I think their pitching staff, some question marks. But I like some of the additions to their batting order with Marwin Gonzalez, with Nelson Cruz. What do you think about this Twins as maybe being a team that can that can make a little noise in a really weak division?
4: Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the biggest issues for the Twins last year was right-handed power. I believe they hit only 62 home runs as a team from the right side last year. You add Nelson Cruz and C.J. Crone, those two guys alone hit 67 last year, uh, home runs from the right side. You know, Jonathan Scope is a really interesting bounce-back candidate. Marvin Gonzalez can do a little bit of everything for you we're going to need to see some of the young arms take a step forward. Fernando Romero is one of them. You know, Cole Stewart and Stephen Gonzalez made their debuts last year. You, you want to see what they can do, if anything. Zach Wittell another guy. So there's at least the young arms there. I think what helps the Twins here is they made a lot of improvements, and they just play not only in a weak division, but the team that's been at the top for a few years now, the Indians, this is the weakest Indians team we've seen yeah. Really, since they rose to the top of the division a few years ago, their outfield and bullpen are among the worst in baseball. Now Francisco Lindor has a calf injury that, you know, if it lingers, they're in real trouble. Uh, The Indians have a great starting pitching staff. That's going to carry them a long, long way. They're going to be able to get some easy wins against the likes of the Royals and the Tigers and the White Sox, but this is not a great Indians team. You know, if you were to ask me how the teams in the majors stack up, I'd say ten of the top thirteen teams in the majors are in the National League right now. The Red Sox, Yankees, and Astros—the only AL teams yeah. that throw in there. Yeah. I mean, the Indians are a middle-tier team, Um and the Twins have a chance, I think, if if they stay healthy and especially if they get any kind of bounce back from Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano. I wouldn't shock me if they jumped. And I still do pick the Indians to win the division, but I think that twins uh, at at above 84 wins is a good bet. And I don't think anyone should be shocked if they overtake the Indians.
2: Kyle, similar question as Geno's, but switching to the national league with the Cincinnati reds, they've made a lot of additions. They've got a really good closer, uh, you know, uh, a a very underrated catcher. They've brought in some hitting, you know, is this kind of what, they needed to do to protect Joey Votto and to really have him, you know, show some more power in the, in, you know, in the home runs and RBI department. And uh, how do you think this kind of plays out for this year's Reds team who, unlike the twins are obviously in a much tougher division.
4: So the Reds, I think are a better team than the twins, but they might finish in fourth place. And that's just a function of who they're playing around them. Um, Again, I really, really like what the Reds did. You know, one of the fundamental issues with the Reds is their in-house pitching development has just been horrendous for years. Um, They're probably the worst in baseball or close to it. They've acquired guys with talent and failed to develop almost every single one of them. So by saying, okay, we're no longer just going to try and hope that we have five homegrown guys all click. All of a sudden, they only need two of them. Bring in Sonny Gray, bring in Alex Wood, bring in Tanner Roark. Um, I think they are much, much better suited to be a, a really, you know, strong starting pitching squad. Um, now all of a sudden Luis Castillo, Anthony Descalfani, they just have to be your numbers four and five. And some of the other guys, you're not relying on them to, you know, come save the pitching staff, which is nice. And this is one of the better lineups in the National League, top to bottom, and they're playing in an offensive-friendly uh friendly ballpark. So all the pieces are there, but, you know, You look at the Cubs, there's more talent. The Cubs have more talent. The Cardinals have more talent. The Brewers were one game away from the World Series last year. I still have a couple of questions about them, but you can't deny that they're the team to beat. They're the defending champions of the division. So I think the Reds are just in a tough spot. If you threw the Reds in the AL Central, I actually think them versus the Indians, it'd be interesting. Two teams with very, very different strengths, but I think it'd be closer than a lot of people realize.
2: And do you think that Votto's numbers are going to kind of look more like what we we maybe hoped to see from Votto, which is that that Mattingly-esque type numbers, you know, high batting average, you know, 35 plus home runs, 120 RBIs. Does bringing in, you know, guys like Puig and Kemp and and they already have, you know, a, a lot of sluggers in the lineup as well. But does this kind of shore things up for
4: him on a personal level? Uh, You know, I I think Joey Votto is going to perform as Joey Votto is going to perform regardless. Again, it's not like the Reds have had, you know, no offensive talent around him. Um, You know, bringing Matt Kemp and Yasiel Puig is going to make the offense better. But, look, Joey Votto, as, as incredible as he is at getting on base, he's also, you know, now 35. He'll turn 36 at the end of the season. He certainly wouldn't be the first guy where we start to see... You know, the slu- the slugging percentage dropped 160 points last year. Um, certainly wouldn't be the first guy that, you know, that kind of happens to as he ages. It wouldn't shock me if he has a bounce back season, but I think that'll be more just about Joey Votto, you know, as an individual kind of independent of anyone else.
1: You mentioned how solid the National League is going to be, and I completely agree with you. After those top 3 teams in the American League. It seems like the the rest of the really solid baseball teams are all in the National. In particular, you look at the NL Central, you look at the NL East, who could both have, you know, four solid teams in each of those divisions. The team that I think I'm the most interested in and maybe if you can kind of rank where you think the power lies in the National League with your top 3 or 4 teams cuz I'm a Dodger fan, and I'm a little nervous when I look at the St. Luke's Cardinals. Um, I think that their team is just absolutely loaded. They look like they have a solid pitching staff. They look like their bullpen got some help. They're young, but like a mixture of youth and some veterans. They added Goldschmidt to a, a already strong lineup. How good is the Cardinals team, and kind of where do you think they la- uh, land in the top-tier teams in the NL?
4: Well, if you go on baseballamerica.com right now, you can see our staff predictions, and I picked the Cardinals to reach the World Series this year. Hey, so right. Here about- we go. Nice. Yeah, no, this is a, a great team, and more than just a great team, they're a deep team. You know, you look at other teams yeah. like the Nationals, like the Mets. What we've seen, and the Dodgers have shown this a lot the last two years, is. Having just a good 25-man roster doesn't cut it anymore. You need a good 30-man roster, a good 35-man roster. Just the pitching injuries that are going to hit, not to mention, you know, guys go down over the course of the year. I, I you know, both in the staff and in the lineup. And the Cardinals are, are uniquely suited in that they have a very deep starting rotation. They now have a very deep lineup. They have a lot of guys who are legitimate big leaguers in triple-A. They're not all in single-A many years away. They're ready to help now as soon as they're called upon. They've got a lot of young talent. They've got some veteran talent. They've got that perfect mix of everything. The Dodgers, look, they're the two-time defending National League champion. You can't really, you know, say they're they're no longer in it because they are. They're a very talented team. They also, you know, they they lost some guys, but they have the depth to to make up for it. Um, but the main concern I would have is is really the pitching staff. I, I really do think the Cardinals have a deeper starting staff right now, a deeper well of yeah. options. Um, not to say the Dodgers don't, the Dodgers absolutely have, you know, the Dodgers might be second in that category. They certainly have more than the Cubs. They certainly have more than, than a lot of teams in the National East that have really loaded up here. Um, but I, I do look at the Cardinals on the whole and think they have a slight edge now.
2: Do uh, the Philadelphia Phillies get their, um, you know, a good return on their investment in year one with Bryce Harper, or do they still not have enough pitching depth? You know, after Nola and Arietta, uh, I'm not convinced about their closer. Um, I know they may move uh, Robertson in that role, but, um, you know, they obviously made a splash with Harper. The, the bigger move in, in terms of stabilizing the pitching staff perhaps was Real Muto. But uh, what, what's your take on Philly? How much improvement can we see from them, a team that was playing good baseball
4: last year for much of the season and then faltered towards the end? Well, you missed it. The single best move they made the off season was the trade that brought them Jean Segura and allowed Segura, them to shake yeah. out Carlos Santana and bring Reese Hoskins over into over to first base. And watching the Phillies play defense last year was it was awful, just absolutely awful, and it was predictably awful. You didn't need to know a ton to know Scott Kingery is not an everyday shortstop and that Reese Hoskins in left field wasn't going to work out. It, you didn't need to be a genius. It was pretty visible that that was a bad plan. Um, so they really, really improved. it That was a masterstroke of a trade. They improved. Their off, they're, they improved their offense by bringing in Segura's uh, skills there, and they improved both their infield defense and outfield defense just in one one move. I thought that was not just the Phillies' best move. I think that was the best trade of the entire offseason. Um, so wh- let me interrupt look, you. I'm sorry. Robert Why did great. they put
2: so much money into Kingery then?
4: That was, well... <laughs> They They didn't really put that much into them. If you look at the years, it's about four or five million dollars a year, and it was yeah. kind of the idea of, hey, we think he's a good player. Let's just, let's just, you know, sign him, and you know, that way we can just bring him up. But there was a lot. Of, I, I don't think it was a great signing, but they made it anyway. So, with, with the Phillies now, they have a a good team. But you're right, Zach Eflin, Vince Velasquez, Nick Pavetta, as good as this team is, particularly offensively and now defensively, which will help these pitchers, if Vince Velasquez, Zach Eflin, Nick Pavetta, and a lot of their other young pitchers don't improve or don't take steps forward or in Velasquez's case in particular show more consistency, it's they're not going to get very far still. So I think while all these moves were great, they were smart, and I applaud the Phillies for making them, whether or not they really become a playoff team is going to have a lot less to do with if Bryce Harper's hitting, you know, 250 or 280, and a lot more to do with if Vince Velasquez is, you know, pitching like the guy who looks like he could throw a no hitter every night compared to the guy who's had an ERA nearly five last year.
2: Good stuff, man. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, talking some baseball here. We hope we can continue the dialogue as the season goes on before you, uh, before we let you go, if you could tell our listeners how they can follow you and uh, where you um, uh, put your best workout.
4: Yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Kyle a Glazer. That's Kyle a G L a S E R baseballamerica.com, you know, we've got stuff up every day, and uh, subscribe to the magazine, we've got a lot of great stuff in there, we've got a new expanded format with more info than you could possibly digest in one sitting, uh, You know, college, high school, MLB, the minors, anything and everything you could want, so uh, Twitter, Kyle A. Glazer, baseballamerica.com, and, and baseball America in the magazine, you can find uh, everything we do.
2: Outstanding. Thanks, Kyle, appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Kyle. No problem, thanks for having me. All right, G, let's take our last commercial break, and we'll talk a little Game of Thrones.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit
0: Facebook.com forward slash Voice America channel Perfect Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. This is the Mike Abadir Show. If you want to call in today, we can be reached at one 346 9144 That's one 346 9144 Or send an email to mike at show.com
1: Now back to this week's program. Nice job there, from Kyle. And uh, as we were talking during the commercial break, we know that Kyle predicted that Red Sox Dodgers World Series last year. So he said he had uh, Cardinals and the Yanks this year. I I think from just like a wagering standpoint, I thought the Cardinals were uh, were a good wager to win the NL. Um, but man, this. It's fun. We'll break things down a little bit more, and we'll have our our uh, NL preview, and we can kind of go through and make our predictions, and we think who's going to win um, each of the divisions. But um, one thing we want to talk about—we don't really have a ton, a ton of time. The show's actually been flying by, Mike. Is what's been going on at Santa Anita? Ironically, we were talking about it a little bit last week, like how yeah. bad things were. Yep. Right before it all went down, we were and we were mainly like talking about how bad the racing product was. And how the, how, short, how short the fields were and how there just weren't a lot of horses. And it's funny, not funny, um, when, when there's horses um, that are being involved here. But th- it's all related, you know. It's, er- everything is related in that it's starting with uh, the bad weather doesn't help. But Santa Anita is a racetrack that is running now more than it ever used to run. They run from December all the way through To June. They take a little time off when they go to La Salle. Again, a little time off when they go to Del Mar. They come back again to Santa Anita. There are more races being run at Santa Anita than ever before just because of no Hollywood Park anymore, no Fairplex, first of all. Those two places are both places where horses used to stable. They're not there at Fairplex or at Hollywood Park anymore. Los Alamitos has stepped in a little bit and has helped some more horses down at Del Mar too, but they can't take all of them. And now, Mike, one thing that we've, we've seen is that the ownership um, from the Strana Group and some of the folks that came over from Gulfstream Park to start um, to, to take care of Santa Anita, really. They put them in charge of Santa Anita, and we've seen a lot of changes made. Some people fired, this and that, new, new things. But what's happened is they've tried to run a what I was calling Gulfstream Park West-West They were trying to do what they were doing at Gulfstream Park at Santa Anita. And and unfortunately, when you don't have the numbers of horses, when you don't have, you have to to take a different approach. And so running nine races on Thursdays and Fridays and 10 and 11 races on the weekends when there are only fields of five, six, and seven, that is another thing that hurts your racetrack. That's more races being run on your track. There are horses that are being wheeled back into to try to fill more races and so forth. I'm really frustrated at the situation because as I pass the baton to you, I think as most things do, Mike, it starts at the very top and it it trickles down and you, you need better leadership at the very top.
2: Are you in, in a way insinuating that I know you said all these issues are connected, but are you kind of insinuating that maybe not just the turf track has had too much wear and tear from these long, long seasons, but maybe somehow, you know, the dirt track along oh, with so, oh, the weather absolutely. and everything else—it's just, just more too, races much. Being it's run too much. It's too much ever
1: than ever before. There's never been this much. So, the thing that was the most frustrating that for me was, like, this week they didn't end up running them, but they can't. They said, "Okay, we're going to cancel on Thursday and we're going to run on Friday." So immediately they say we're going to run eleven races on Friday. Why? Do do they need to run that many races right now in Southern California? Are there that many horses looking for races to run in? No. That's the problem. They're 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 carding too many races. There are too many races being run over a track that's not been used to it ever. It's just plain and simple. No, could know? that be and use just, and, and just and the their
2: trainers like, hey, you know, we need more races to run in?
1: Well, they it one thing you think you're gonna run more races, you think your handle is gonna go up, but what we're seeing happening is that the hand like people aren't betting on the small fields, they just don't care, they just don't care, and this, you know, this is like a really big issue too because. Uh, it, the way this is being covered all over the place, this is terrible. Nothing that is happening right now at Santa Anita is good in any way, shape, or form. It Absolutely all needs not. to be tweaked. It all needs to be changed. And man, this is something that impacts a lot of people. You don't realize, like how many people that are working there that are, you know, not only the, you know, like owners, trainers, jockeys, or like the valets and the grooms and the people who work on the backside. How about the people who work at the racetrack themselves? And all of a sudden now you just out of nowhere, your checks are gone for the next couple For how long? You don't know. So what do you do? Do you go get a new job somewhere else? And then you don't know what what I mean, it's this is this is a difficult situation for a lot of people because nobody really knows what's going on. The date that keeps circulating, people are saying March 28th. That would be twenty-one days from, from now. Um, with that without San Anita being opened. We're already seeing that these are Kentucky Derby points races that are going to be missed and a race like that can't be made up because of the way that they fall in order uh, of the preps. You can't make up the San Felipe. You know what I mean? You can't make up a a derby prep race in three weeks.
2: It just, no. I mean, I think the only way would be if, and even like spacing wise, you know, there's, there's rhyme or reason to it. I think the only way would be if they held it at Salle the following Saturday. I mean yeah, and I, otherwise I don't think they can it, then you're they can train
1: at Los Al, but I don't think they're they would even be able to like move the races and stuff over there. Like I think some horses can go down there and train, but that would be quite a fiasco.
2: I mean um, put it this way, Ed Allred is offered. Oh, and he's, for he's that, stepping up, man.
1: He's stepped up yeah. in the last five years, if it wasn't for him, there there, there wouldn't be Southern California racing right now. It's um No, it's and the funny little, thing about it is when
2: you're talking about this year round stuff. You know they they fight him. They fight him. Barely give him two weekends here, two weekends and there, and three
1: weekends. And they don't really know, support and him. And we as betters don't really support him a lot when they go over there. There's not really like a turf course and stuff. But it's it one of the few people that have stepped up. And we only have a, a couple minutes more. But it's just been um, it's been frustrating, Mike. And this is something that someone um, me who worked in the industry for a while. These are some of the like I'm not specifically talking about just. The horses that are passing away right now, but just the way that everything is run from the top. I mean, a couple weeks they were going to close the racetrack down a few weeks ago for a few mornings. They got pressure from a couple of the trainers. They opened it back up. A couple more horses um, die in the in the morning's training. They, like it's just there's nobody who can just. Make a decision, make a logical, make a smart decision. And and I'm I am i don't like saying this, but it, it happens all over the place. And it happens way too much in horse racing, way too much in horse racing. And that's what's disappointed me. And that was one of the reasons why I left TVG. You know, we talked about it, it was just the decisions being made by a lot of the people at TVG and other places that I saw. I saw the writing on the wall and I've kind of been negative even with you many times. when we've had conversations, not because I don't love racing, not because I don't love the horses or or a lot of the people in it. But because I'm nervous and I'm scared of the people who run it and the decisions that they make. Yeah, no, you've been consistent with that all along. Um, like you
2: said, we only have a short time left. So let's quickly uh, discuss who are the defectors so far. So Rosario has moved his tack to Gulfstream Park until the uh, Keeneland meet starts, I believe. A couple yep, of they're the saying apprentices is going to
1: be moving a ton of horses.
2: Yeah, Well, I, I don't know if that's confirmed yet, but I heard to no, open no, park I said, perhaps. No, yeah, no,
1: just rumor, just rumor yeah. that he's um, shifting. Because if you're right now, you have a lot of horses. They need to run. They got to run. Exactly. They got to exactly. go somewhere. They can't just sit for three weeks and do nothing.
2: No, no these are athletes. So like any yeah. athlete, if there was a lockout or something like that, they would you're still training be training somewhere. every day. If you're a baseball player, you're going to be getting your cuts in. You're going to be getting, you know, some uh, – you know, working on your fielding, your pitching, your throwing arms, so on and so forth. These are athletes like anybody, like any other professional athlete. So they have to get their work in. I believe two of the apprentices, Figueroa and Velez, are heading up to Golden Gate. Like you mentioned, Baffert maybe uh, going to Oakland, perhaps. That may be rumor, maybe not. How can they make these decisions if uh, if there's nothing concrete, right? So I can't blame anybody who leaves. Want everybody yeah, and, to stay. And, can't blame anybody who leaves. I hope that if Allred off, you know, is offering these things, that they'll take them up on it, so they can at least run maybe three days of racing dirt, you know, surface, and and, and go from there. But and this tough is in
1: front. Yeah, and we're we're getting ready to leave. This is in front of the scenes, not behind the scenes, behind the scenes. This is a family, the stronic family that is suing each other over hundreds of millions and millions of dollars. And it's, it's not pretty really on any way, shape or form. So that that's like a soap opera that we could film and and go on forever about. But Mike, we're going to talk starting next week, some game of Thrones topics leading up to the premiere of game of Thrones. We've got some college basketball coming up. So the, uh, the topics and the sports, they're going to be shifting a little bit here on the Mike Abadir show in the next few weeks.
2: Yeah, I hope I didn't disappoint anybody by not getting to the Game of Thrones talk today, but we've definitely reserved time to do so next week. So thank you for listening. You'll hear us same time, same place next week.
0: Thanks for joining us this week for the Mike Abadir Show. Please tune in again next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another show with Mike and his co-host, Gino Bacola, on the Voice America Sports Channel. Have a great week.